0: This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, December 28th of 2017, it's episode 123. In this episode, making mass combat interesting, a topic selected by our Patreon supporters. Plus, the games we aren't good enough to run our Christmas Gaming, Patreon Changes, Congratulations to Mike Berna, and the loss of Pat Roper. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm Jenny. Happy New Year's, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yes, yes, How's everybody been?
1: Let's just say that the back end of December was much better than the front end and leave it at that. Mm. Yeah. I hear that. Everybody have a good Christmas?
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fun fact about Anglicans, we don't celebrate Christmas as heavy as we celebrate Christmas Eve, so my, my Christmas Eve was phenomenal. There was actually a very funny incident. I was the narrator in our um Lessons and Carols pageant, and one of the sheep had to be um escorted from the room for swinging her toy sheep around by its neck all the time. That was really funny and adorable. Oh nice. dear. Yeah. She was so enthused. She was so happy. And then she had she was told, No, you you can't strangle a sheep on stage. Can't do that. It's and not then that the stress kind of started.
1: <laughs> look kid you're not Ozzy Osbourne okay just just leave it alone
0: (laughs) (laughs) our church does a children's nativity as well we actually do too there's the nice nativity you know the play that uh, my wife did costumes for and you know all this stuff right there's a little bit of production value that goes into it Mm mm-hmm and then there's the children's one, which is let's get all the small children to memorize a couple of basic lines, get prompted. You know, it's like it's totally fine that there's someone up on stage giving each kid the line. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Both of our kids were in that one. Five year old was Mary, and she was super excited about this. She learned all of her lines, didn't need any prompting, read everything very clearly, sang everything very clearly. She was super into this.
2: Oh, very good.
0: Cool. And then. Uh, the one year old who's near getting close to two, my goodness, he was a sheep because they do this thing where (laughs) Mary and Joseph come down, you know, come in, uh, on a donkey, which is one of the older kids, um, with a horse mask on like this, one of those horrifying horse masks
1: (laughs) on his knees with like two kids riding
0: on his back. And it's (laughs) kind of funny. Um, just kind of crawling down the, uh, the, the aisle of the fellowship hall until they're at the stage. It's. It's hilarious. Right, nobody and will be
1: emotionally scarred by that. No,
0: <laughs> definitely not. And then it's like, all right, well, all these older kids, they throw on super cheap shepherd costumes and, and they're the shepherds. And then, you know, all the little ones are sheep. Mm-hmm. We had, I think, nine shepherds and my one year old was the only sheep. Oh, wow.
2: <laughs> so he was I guess well I,
0: herded. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's
2: just this year. Like we, for the first time in ages, also had more shepherds than sheep which was very odd. We also had um, a smaller pageant than normal because um, this just happens sometimes, especially in a small town, like a town as small as mine. There are just years when everybody separately decides we're going to go away to visit family. And so we've got like five families in church. I actually remember one year where there were 5 people who showed up to church because Oh my. I believe there was also a blizzard that year. So like half the church left for holidays and then there was a blizzard and it's like, "Well, we physically can't leave the house." Okay.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're in church and you're like, "It's too cold, but yet I hear crickets anyway."
2: Uh-huh. <laughs>
0: All right. One, one last little note on this, and then we should move on because this is going to be a long episode as it is uh-huh. talking about sudden changes in small churches and just not knowing who you've got. The bigger nativity play that I mentioned, Chrissy kind of gets a, a list of people who are in costumes every year. Right. And the problem is Chrissy did a really good job the first two years. Like she just knocked things out of the park being a trained costume designer. Yeah. And so now I think yeah. they can they just sort of assume that she can do anything in about two weeks. Oh, Oh, no. She was told last year, oh, no, all the angels are going to be children going forward. Okay. well, let me make a whole bunch of new angel costumes in different sizes. All right. Done. This year. Here's the cast. Oh, look, all of the angels are adults.
1: Oh, no. Oh,
0: Oh, and I don't know if this is just, you know, it's different families participating or or what. But (laughs) Chrissy pretty much had to call and be like, I can't do anything for you this year. I'm sorry. There is too much going on. There's a reason I've made a whole bunch of extra costumes. Please use those. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it was one of those where it was like, I think you trapped yourself, dear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I mentioned this is going to be a long episode. We have a lot to talk about. Quite a bit of like banter stuff, actually, too. A so. fair bit. A fair yeah. bit. We're going to be talking about making mass combat interesting. And this is a topic that was picked by our Patreon supporters. Uh, it was technically supposed to go out in November or December, but due to scheduling and one week where I was super sick, everyone else was super stressed, and we just could not get it together. We had to throw up a, a bonus, not even a bonus. I guess it was a bonus episode. We did do it as a yeah, bonus episode. Yeah, I think
1: episode. I had three yeah. different emergencies going on simultaneously at once that week. That really yeah, wasn't a good time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we had to throw this bonus ode up there. Uh, bonus out. Wow. Ooh, eologisms <laughs> for the win. Um, yeah.
1: That's okay. Fun Yeah.
0: <laughs> I am not the fun I'm going to give that <laughs> honor. Let's say honor to Jenny. Um, <laughs> that was actually fairly well received. So we may be doing more on biblical figures, turning those into gameable uh, inspiration and figures and that sort of thing. But
1: if only there were a zillion of them.
0: Yeah, I know. But anyway, this was supposed to go out November or December. It's coming out in January, and we apologize. To make it up to you, we're probably going to kind of do two episodes on this topic. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. But I do want to talk about Patreon here. This is a a topic brought to us by our Patreon supporters. And anybody who's been paying attention to anything Patreon related knows that Patreon kind of had a fairly major screw up. Right at the end of 2017, where they announced plans to increase the costs of supporting people and really heavily weight those costs towards small donors and small donations. So if you supported one person for $10, you'd see a increase of like 18% or 8%. I don't remember the exact numbers. And then if you were making $10 donations, your total cost would go up like 38%. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, creators would get a little bit more, but not the full 100%. And it was a whole thing. Anyway, massive blowback. Uh, Patreon lost a bunch of people who were uh, giving donations in the first place. More than – they seemed to have recognized that they were going to lose some $1 donations, but thought that in the long term they would make it up. They lost a whole lot more than they expected, and nobody had anything good to say about it, including – any of the supposed high-value creators they consulted, which they never produced any examples of. So yeah, that did not go well for them. As a result, that's been reverted. But it has left me pondering over this Christmas break what to do about support for the show over the long term. Um, I'm fine with sticking with Patreon for now. It's been very successful for us, aside from this one screw-up of theirs, which they reverted.
1: It's also worth noting that some of our listeners actually increased their pledges in response to this, which was astoundingly generous of you folks. Yeah,
0: it was. There was a sense that, oh, we're going to lose a lot of people. Therefore, I need to step up and support the show, which was great. We really appreciate that. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, we would have probably broken about even. Yeah. If they'd gone through with those changes, but they were terrible for a great many other people. And that's not healthy. No, not even slightly. We like seeing good, creative people get supported. So there you go. But it's left me thinking about what to do for that. I do like Patreon, but this suggests the possibility that they may make other bad decisions down the road. Uh, I don't want to stay tied to one particular ecosystem for supporting the show. So I'm going to look into some possibilities. Maybe there's just going to be a big old donate button on the site or something like that. I don't know. Any service we use is going to necessarily have a middleman, even if it's PayPal. That's just the nature of transferring money over the Internet. Yeah, I mean, unless you want to set up like an automated bill pay out of your bank account for us, and please don't, because
1: um, yeah, that, that, I that don't know be, how to handle that on my end. Yeah, that would be bad for everybody involved. Your, your <laughs> bank would probably send a nasty gram to you, or it, 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 just don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't do that.
0: But this is also an opportunity to change up some things about our Patreon in general that I'm I'm feeling don't work very well. Um, Like our $1 donations work really well. And I think $5 and above works fine. But the problem is there's a big jump from one to five. And I like, I kind of want all of our listeners to be able to vote on topics like this, not, or at least all of our patrons rather than just people who, you know, donate $5 or more. I had a somewhat more restricted idea of like, who do I want to Help give control over the show to right? I mean, it's like, oh, they got to be serious about it. It's like, well, I mean, it's one question every three months, like one topic every three months that we were interested in doing anyway. Does it matter? No, it's fine. So I need to kind of open that up to more people.
1: Hey, at least you weren't as nearly as reserved about the idea of taking money at all as I was. You had to fight me tooth and nail about that for what, two and a half years?
0: Yeah. But I do want to come up with something else that people who donate like more than a dollar, something for them. And we have a couple people who donate 10 or 20. And frankly, we're not doing anything for you guys. And I feel like we should. Um, There's one guy who who donates a great deal and has for a while. We need uh, he's been asking us to get a couple of specific guests on, which I think is fine. But we need to formalize that because right now it's just, oh, we'll do something cool for you. Well, I mean, that's great. But also, first of all, we need to actually do
1: the cool thing for him. And yeah, second, that. yeah, there there needs to be more of a process there. Yeah. So I've got some work to do on that. And the other side of
0: this is there are cool things that we want to do as saving the game going into 2018. And maybe this is as close as we're going to get to a New Year's resolutions episode this time around. You know, like I, I want to do like a, a weekly saving the game live stream of some sort.
1: That'd be really Absolutely. fun.
0: And, you know, might be video games, might be us playing some sort of tabletop game. Jenny was kind enough to give me a copy of Tabletop Simulator uh, for Christmas, which is awesome. Thank you, Jenny. We'll be talking about You're welcome. that in a little bit. Peter gave us some stuff. I gave uh, a really fun game <laughs> to everybody uh, involved. <laughs> oh, And yeah. some of that we use Patreon money for <laughs> because I I fully expected that we're going to turn that into something for the stream, which is fine. But we need to then turn that into something for the stream because that's what the mm-hmm. Patreon money is for. And I've set that goal at like $100, which turned out to be a little high. I think I set it that high originally, like, well, you know, I I really want this to be serious and we're probably never going to get there. But now I'm looking at it going, but I kind of just want to do it and I want it to be a Patreon related thing. So I got to I got to rework all that long and short of it is if you have suggestions for rewards, if you have suggestions for goals, anything like that. Go ahead and send those to us. And I don't care if you're a patron or not. If you have an idea for what you want to see from us, cool things you want to see from us, please, that's fine. Uh, The one thing that is probably still off the table, unfortunately, is an actual play. And that's simply because of the tremendous amount of editing involved Mm -hmm. and time commitment. Even if I didn't edit it at all and it was just one long, gross recording, I don't think I have time to fit another game in. And go through the process of turning that into a
1: viable recording, uploading it, cutting it up into pieces, publishing it, so on and so forth. Yeah, that would be something that we would need to be able to hire somebody else to do the editing for. And that's yeah. probably going to be kind of a, a far off thing if it happens. Yeah. The cost of just
0: doing that ends up being about 300 a month. Yeah. Like we could probably, if we did it as a once a month, the going rate for editors is about 60 an hour. Just yeah, fair enough give a ballpark number.
1: Mm -hmm. We're probably talking a little bit too much about this already. We should move on. Well, yeah, Yeah. the point is I want people involved
0: in this, right? So if you've got any suggestions along those lines, uh, anything that you'd like to see us do going into 2018, I would like to hear it. Uh, We've gotten some positive feedback from certain things, but it's hard making decisions like that. And it's hard to come up with all of these cool ideas all at once. If I can outsource it to you all of our listeners that's actually super helpful it really is yeah. so i would appreciate it all right let's talk a little bit about uh, some gaming we did over christmas because oh boy have we we done some fun stuff it's been a very game heavy christmas for me actually hmm. so first off we got to talk about ultimate chicken horse we oh, do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right so Looking. ultimate chicken horse for those who don't know is like a 15 dollar game on steam It's up to four players, either remote or local or some combination thereof, which is very nice. And it's horse with chickens and chameleons and elephants and a sheep and a squirrel and a raccoon. Basically, you're building an obstacle course. It's a very simple kind of 2D Super Meat Boy-like platformer, not quite as heavy or as tightly controlled as Super Meat Boy, but similar in function. And every round, everybody gets a piece to put on the obstacle course. A platform, an obstacle, a little reward, a coin, you know, a teleporter, a spinning blade on a arm, a little bit of spiky glass, a flower that punches you, a crossbow, things that make <laughs> a these fire rotate. hydrant
1: that can lift you into the air, yeah, yeah. fans,
0: black holes, uh, bits to make all of these stick together and spin, all sorts of fun things. And the idea is horse, right? Because it's I can do this, and I'm betting you guys can't. Because the goal is to get from the start to the end, and if everybody makes it, there are no points given. And if nobody makes it, there are no points given.
1: If at least one person makes it, points get given.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yep. It's a lot of fun. We've been having an absolute blast with it. It took the place of our D&D night for two weeks in a row because nobody was in the right mind for D&D, and holidays are super stressful, so... We did that instead, and it turned out to massively help the mood, and that's definitely something we are going to stream at some point, because yeah. yes. it is a ton of fun.
1: There was a there was a lot of stress that got relieved by that first game in particular. <laughs>
0: yeah. Also, I don't think my wife is allowed to play it on stream because her language gets so bad when she's playing oh.
1: that. <laughs> she does get a little bit salty when, yeah. <laughs> and she's not uh. good
0: with platformers anyway. They're not her neither thing. am
1: I, as you have seen. So ah, oh, no, you was, did, it, you were doing fine that na- that last time we played. Mm-hmm. Eh, it was mostly you and our um, nameless player that were doing the best, though. I, I suppose that's true. Well, the nameless player was playing that stoic looking chicken, and he would just wait until we'd all died, and then try and make it through, and he usually would. So. Yeah, that's
2: true. <laughs> It's also important to note that the controls are sort of janky on purpose. Yeah. Like the, the wall jump is a little sticky feeling. You, you glide when you walk a little bit. It's, it is just a physically taxing game to play.
1: Yeah, the, the, the ability to wipe out and go straight into a flower that's going to punch you into next week is, <laughs> yeah, that's very easy.
0: <laughs> oh, and it's super easy to just be like, try the jump, try the jump, try the jump, try the jump. Make oh, the there's jump. the black hole. Not realize that you made the jump, jump again, slide on the ice, fall off the map. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, it's all sorts of fun. (laughs) Strongly recommended. Yes. A couple other things that I got that I have been enjoying. I haven't played this one yet, and this is the only board game I got. Uh, This is one that Mike Perna is a big fan of. By the way, we should say, Mike, congratulations. Mike Bruno had his first son. Yeah, congratulations, Mike.
2: Yay!
0: We're not going to give out names or dates on the air, but Mike, congratulations. Yeah. But he, uh, one of the the Inroads-approved games that they're very fond of is a game called A Game for Good Christians. And this was a gift to me from Chrissy. Uh, This is basically... Cards Against Humanity with Bible verses. <laughs> that it's actually fun. delightful because it's all the really difficult bits of the Bible as answers. Huh. This is mildly not safe for work, but I, you know, tech, this is this is in scripture, so y'all deal. I'm gonna grab a couple of cards and I'm just gonna give you some examples of answers that are in here. Feeding of the five thousand. All right, fine. Cows covered in sackcloth. That's from Jonah three eight. Serial killing gossips. Psalm 101, verse 5. A concubine cut into pieces and her severed remains fedexed around the country.
2: Huh.
0: Yeah. Acts 29, passing out in church, falling out a window, and breaking your neck. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, Prophets stripping balls. Uh, The verse reference on this is all of them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I, I think maybe that's good, Grant. That's yeah. <laughs> my my brain is starting to stitch here. these together into a coherent mental image, and I, let's stop before it gets any worse. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep, uh, dissolving your enemy into snail slime. Ooh, Psalm fifty-eight, eight a. There you go, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know, it's it's cards against humanity, but definitely for Christians, right?
2: Uh, it- uh, yes. in, in the sense that yes. it is actually
0: challenging uh, for Christians. Now, the great part about this is there are actually um, Bible studies on their website for a lot of these verses. Huh. Hmm. Which is That's is interesting. Cool. Yeah. Very interesting little game. Lots of expansions as well, which is fun. Hmm.
1: I, I feel like if you could go back in time and grab like a famous Christian writer, you'd get GK Chesterton to play this with you in 3.2 nanoseconds or so. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. <laughs>
0: A couple other fun things I got picked up in the Steam Winter Sale, Antichamber, which was like 80% off, Subnautica, which is fun, but a little difficult. I haven't gotten very far in that yet. Peter was kind enough to give me a copy of Armello. Uh, Jenny was kind enough to give me a copy of Tabletop Simulator, as I said before. Uh, Someone else who probably doesn't want their name read on the show, as far as I know, uh, gave me a copy of Undertale, which I haven't played yet, but I'm excited to try. And then... I picked up for myself a copy of Kerbal Space Program, which I've been playing a lot of and have been having a lot of fun with. For those who don't know, that's basically a uh, NASA simulator, but with doofy aliens. Really fun and let me tell you, it does not skimp on the orbital mechanics and orbital mechanics, as it turns out, are very difficult. <laughs> I spent two days trying to get to the moon, finally followed along with a, uh, a video guide from a guy I, I really like, a guy who uh, goes by Quill 18 on YouTube. One thing I do like is he curses a little bit, but not too much. Mostly he's pretty clean, which is nice. But yeah, he does a lot of stuff like this. And I had to carefully follow along with him <laughs> because I was getting <laughs> stuck. It turns out, I don't know if you know this. Small changes in rocket trajectories and thrusts and masses have significant
1: impacts. Who knew? Huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, good times. And then I picked up a copy of Torts 2. I was two trying because... to visit the moon. It turns out I visited another galaxy. Oops. No, it turns <laughs> out I blew up on the launch
0: on the launch pad because my gravity term was a little too sharp. Um, uh, and then I picked up a copy of Torts 2 music. for myself and for Chrissy. Uh, and we've been playing that a fair bit because we both like Diablo 2 and this is just a pretty Diablo 2 clone, basically. Hmm. Surprising amount of mod support for that game, too. Yeah, although all the mods I see on the Steam Workshop are things like, double XP for all characters.
1: Unlock everything! It's like, really, guys? Come uh, on. No, there's there's more. I remember I'm sure a bunch there of ones. like new classes and stuff, too. I mean, it, there, was, there was some neat stuff, and... Some fun cosmetic mods and things the last time I yeah. looked anyways. Maybe that's. Yeah, no, I, I I'm
0: sure there's a lot of good stuff. It's just like all the stuff that kind of gets front paged is here, have some cheats. Yeah. Well, anyway. people
1: like that. I know. I know. I don't know why, but they do. Yeah. Jenny, did you get anything? Do anything interesting?
2: Um, I got not very much in the way of games. All of my physical presents that I got were books. Some very nice books, might I add. I got Armello from Peter as well. I that That's another one that I'm really looking forward to streaming. Um, also, Peter, my dad did buy it.
1: Um, oh, did he? And he also
2: immediately, <laughs> he did. And he immediately bought the um, Bandit Clan DLC. And then I did too. And I'm really looking forward to playing <laughs> all of the bandits.
1: Yeah, Horace is probably my favorite character in the whole game.
2: Yeah, I, I played as him. He He's a, an interesting, interesting dude. <laughs> I actually gave my parents a thing called digraphs which is basically an expansion for Scrabble. So you have two letters per tile. Huh. Um, so really? you get consonant clusters and uh, vowel clusters. Like, um, for instance, if you have the OU tile, it can be used as OU. It can also be used as just an O or just a U. And then the rules for digraphs state that you have to take out a certain number of vowels from the base game so that you sort of substitute in the, the correct number of tiles. Um, My parents have been having a lot of fun with that one.
0: Interesting. So this actually replaces some of the tiles in the Scrabble game.
2: Yeah, but not letter for letter either. So like when you add in the TH tile, you don't take out a T and an H. You take out like an A and an E. It's a really weird, interesting twist on on the whole game because my parents play Scrabble so often. It's like, oh, Jenny's off doing homework. Uh, What's a good two-player game? uh, Scrabble. So they've really been enjoying digraphs. Um, And I got Ultimate Chicken Horse from Grant. And the books that I got were a boxed omnibus of all of the Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind comics, because I watched it with my parents and my mother especially was thoroughly unsatisfied. And she was like, this feels like it's, you know, the beginning of a series and it didn't finish. And I looked it up and I was like, that's exactly what this was. And also, Hayao Miyazaki never wanted to make this a movie. So I now have all of that. And I also got from my boyfriend, Tyler, the official Overwatch art book, which is a tome. Ooh. It's huge. Oh, I bet. And also a Hearthstone cookbook, which I will be using extensively this coming year. It's got some really tasty looking things in there.
1: Cool. So, Peter, I I got um, Firewatch from Jenny, and I have already played it through once and have started on a second playthrough. uh for for those of you who have not tried like firewatch or gone home or any of these so-called walking simulator games first of all they're really a very nice experience a lot of the time um this one was particularly well done and uh yeah i just it, it does a really good job of giving you an interesting and in the middle very tense story with fairly minimal resources um It's very it's very pretty because it takes place out in uh, like the Boulder, Colorado area. But it's also the the textures are it almost kind of reminds me of like watercolors or something. It's not super detailed, but it's it's got a lot of vibrancy and stuff to it. It's it's a very cool looking game. So I, I definitely enjoyed that. And then. Um, I wound up with a bunch of gift cards, so I finished off my collection of, um, 5e non-published adventure books. Uh, I got both of the books for the Microscope RPG, which I'm very excited to do something with some combination of my Saving the Game hosts at some point in the not-too-distant future, I hope. And I've then got I Microscope
0: got- as well, and I've been wanting to play that for a while.
1: Yeah. I do
2: not have Microscope, but I've heard nothing but good things, and I do want to play it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, we'll have to make that happen at some point. Oh, yeah. And then on Jenny's recommendation, I picked up Pyre, and on Grants, I picked up Final Fantasy X and X-2. I've played a little further into Pyre. It's a little easier to play small chunks of than a Final Fantasy game, but I'm going to be on vacation this coming week, so I'll have some time to dig into Final Fantasy. So I'm looking forward to those. Good. I think that's about everything
0: from us. Uh, One thing I do want to mention, and this is a a sad bit of news here. Uh, Pat Roper, uh, one of the longtime hosts of Fear the Boot, good friend of the, uh, the Fear the Boot family. Uh, he passed away as a result of uh, cancer right after Christmas. Uh, and we want to express our sympathies to his family and to everyone at Fear the Boot and all the Fear the Boot listeners as well. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I got a chance to meet Pat at Fear the Con one year. Excellent guy. A lot of fun. And he will be missed.
2: Mm-hmm. Pat was exceedingly kind to us at um fear, at the first Fear the Con that my family ever went to. So yeah, yeah,
1: very well known, loving husband and father too. So and a young man only forty three. I know. Yeah. We do
0: have a Patreon question to get to. Uh, let me go ahead and roll a die here. Okay, so this one is uh, from Paige Low, and her question is: Is there a game or campaign or something like that you wish you could run? but you don't feel skilled enough to do it.
2: Every single thing I want to run, I feel like I don't feel skilled enough to do it. <laughs> um,
1: well, that's just imposter syndrome.
2: I know, I know that's the thing. I've been wanting to run, as I mentioned in our episode about planning a convention, I mentioned that I wanted to run a game based on the Leviathan series. That's probably the one I feel least qualified to run out of all of the ideas in my head. And it's it's just because I, it, it as we're actually going to talk about in this episode, it is a war-based one. Although there isn't that much, a, like a lot of big combat, I am not terribly knowledgeable or skilled in the history of mass combat or wartime stuff. So it would have to be sort of an, I, I guess, an in-between war kind of thing. So like in the 1920s for Leviathan. But I I still still feel like I'd be way out of my depth running that.
1: Fair. Listen to the Hardcore History podcast.
2: I keep meaning to.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So for me, there's two games that I struggle to play or struggle to run, and I really, really want to run. And it's just, it's not really worked out well for me. The first is a Legend of the Five Rings game. And the second is an Eberron game, and they both fail for the same reason. Uh, I don't feel like I can adequately convey enough of the setting and absorb enough of the setting to tell a convincing story in that setting, because both of them are very complicated, established settings where you have to know a lot going in. And some of that is a burden on players, but it's also a big burden on the GM. And that's why I really like I really want to run games in both of those settings. And I, I just can't figure out how
1: I run up against the yeah. exact same thing in any setting at all that I didn't personally create to the point where I've just kind of accepted it, and I just don't do it. If if I didn't come huh. up with the setting, I'm not running a game in it because I don't want somebody at the table to be like, well, actually, this was actually four years after you have it in your campaign. And no. <laughs> Uh, no, yeah. I'm not going to do that. Or, you know, these mountains aren't here or this, you know, this lake doesn't have particular type of aquatic monster in it. Or, uh, no, <laughs> I'm creating the setting. <laughs> End of story. <laughs> OK,
0: I think that answers Paige's question fairly well. Paige, thanks mm-hmm. for the question. If you want to get your question on the list, you can support us. Patreon.com slash saving the game. A dollar or more gets you uh, access to our backlog of shows and uh, the option to send in questions for us to roll on our big table and see what we come up with. Let's go ahead and do our scripture here, and then let's dive into this giant topic that we set for ourselves, you know, 36, 40 minutes in. Woo. (laughs) Uh, I'll take the the Joshua verse, if that's all right. Who wants to start with Exodus?
1: Uh, I guess I'll take Exodus. Oh, okay. Rock, paper, shotgun over the internet? (laughs) Sorry, rock, paper, (laughs) scissors over the internet? Now I'm thinking about PC gaming sites. Just, (laughs) if you want it, it's all yours. I'll take Ephesians. (laughs)
2: When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword.
0: And our next verse is Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. We're talking tonight, as we've said a couple of times already, about mass combat, and we kind of have two things that we wanted to talk about. We're going to talk about, in this episode, making mass combat scenarios interesting in general. And then in a future episode, maybe right after this one, maybe not, we're not quite sure yet, we're going to talk about role-playing in a mass combat scenario. But in this case, we're going to talk about making a mass combat scenario interesting in the first place, because sometimes... You do end up in your story involved in some sort of mass combat, some sort of large-scale battle, because sometimes small-scale role-playing involves larger forces, including military forces. The problem is mass combat when done wrong is tedious and worse. Just because you've got characters who are involved in a battle doesn't mean that the battle or the outcome of the battle is particularly relevant to the story you're telling. Doesn't mean it isn't either, but... (laughs) Well, right, but playing it out, if it's not relevant, is a huge waste of time. What we want to talk about in this episode is, if you're in a situation where mass combat is about to happen for some reason, and you have a reason to play it out, it is incumbent on everyone to make this interesting, and here are some tips for GMs on creating an interesting combat scenario that is more than just a couple of people involved in a small scale tactical combat like you get in most role-playing games. Now, this may happen for a couple of reasons. Uh, player characters are maybe in charge of uh, some sort
1: of military force or police force or something like that. Great. Cool. That's a, a thing that's happened in the game. Yeah, it's worth mentioning that a riot absolutely is a mass combat. If you're trying to contain it as law enforcement, it's not as deadly as a lot of military ones, but it certainly can go that way. It, it can certainly mm-hmm. be played out that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The
0: other reason to, to do this is war is... Interesting. War is a dramatic setting changing event. Uh, and even if it's relatively quick, your world changes.
1: Yeah, look at the six day war from real world history.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of tension in that, especially if you're at a point where the players don't have a lot of control over how the battle's going to go. Certainly not over the entirety of the battle. But maybe they have just enough control over just the right part of the battle that what they do turns the outcome, changes things. That's Interesting, and that's fun, and that's a, a tense, dramatic moment that has significant implications down the road, and that's a great thing to play out. But you have to make it an interesting battle first in almost every case. A couple of notes before we get into this too deeply there are a lot of mass combat rules out there. We're not going to be getting into those. Uh, In fact, a lot of what we're going to talk about is covered by some of those mass combat rules out there. But you probably still, if you're going to use one of those mass combat rules, listen to this anyway, because for most mass combat rules I have seen, don't cover everything and they don't always do a good job of making everything interesting. They tend to be very much a spreadsheet. (laughs) They do. And that's the second thing. Whether you're inventing a war game rule on the fly, or you're trying to incorporate story into a mass combat rules system, remember that you don't need rules for everything. You only need enough rules to cover what's actually being played at the table with the involvement of other players. You do not need to sit there and roll to see how everything goes on the other side of the battle when the thing that's going to decide the outcome of the battle is happening right here at the table with the players.
1: Yeah. If you're playing a land combat and two naval fleets are slugging it out in the harbor, you can just fiat that. Focus on where the players are.
0: And focus on what matters. Who cares how many supplies they've got if the players aren't raiding the supplies and supplies aren't factoring in? It's fine. Don't worry about it. All that having been said, let's talk about setting because I think this is Maybe the second most important thing, (laughs) Um, and that that sounds silly, but I do want to start here because I think this is kind of the obvious thing people think about.
1: So the first thing that I would have to say about this is give a lot of thought to um, where your large scale combat is happening, the terrain of the battle, and also very importantly, how the battle might change the terrain. If you're dealing with, like, a siege of a walled castle that's up on a hill in the middle of a plain, you know, with the stereotypical castle fortifications like, you know, moats and drawbridges and, um, you know, maybe secondary palisades and stuff, that is going to feel very different, or at least it should feel very different, from two armies fighting it out in a foggy forest in the early hours of the morning. The terrain should influence those events a lot. In the one
0: case, armies have done have done a lot to prepare for it and have shaped the terrain to try and create advantages. And in the, and other, in the other case, they've yeah. blundered into each other.
1: Yep. Or at the very least, you know, they may both be planning to have this fight, but the fog was unexpected and now they both have to deal with it. Changing visibility matters a ton. Yeah, especially once you're um, at a level of technology where ranged weapons become the default way of fighting each other. If you've got a bunch of heavy fog, but two columns of like... Roman legionary type troops engage each other with melee weapons well maybe the archers in the back ranks won't be able to hit targets as well but a lot of the time they weren't doing that anyways they're just firing volleys of arrows to thin the ranks of the enemy as the armies were closing at each other. In a situation where you're dealing with gunpowder weapons and people are, like, shooting at each other and stuff, fog is a major, major change on the battlefield. So is rain. So is snow. anything, like Grant said, that um, obscures visibility, Uh, sandstorms in an arid uh, environment or dust storms can do that. Um, Also, if things are very hot or cold, that can affect how equipment works, how comfortable armor is to wear. What the ground is like, if things are you know, wet and people are getting stuck in mud, that's very different than if you're fighting on dry packed earth. Weather is very important. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yes. The other thing about setting is how did everyone get here and why? What brought the combatants to this place? Was it just, you know, maneuvering that's happened before the game? Was it a particular story event? Is there some MacGuffin here that everyone's fighting over, et cetera, et cetera? That brings us to the question of, is there a centerpiece in this battle, right? Is there a landmark or a strategic location the whole battle's revolving around? Or is this a series of small, messy engagements where you just have two armies hitting each other, and maybe there's a couple of strategic strong points, but there's not a point everyone is trying to take.
1: Yeah. Basically, one of the armies is trying to prevent one of the other armies from being somewhere that the first army doesn't want the second army to be.
0: Exactly. And we'll talk about objectives later. But if you're setting up a cool set piece, go for it. I think cool set piece battles are fantastic. They're great when you're doing regular role-playing game combat situations. Scaling it up doesn't make it any less cool. It just potentially makes it a little more complicated, but it also may explain what everyone is doing and why.
1: Yeah. Also allows for larger set pieces. I mean, you can have fights in entire canyons and stuff instead of just a little cave or, you know.
0: Yeah, or Mm -hmm. asteroid belts, what have you. Scale matters a lot. How many people are involved? How big an area is this happening over? How long is this going to take? Many ancient battles were not fought in the space of a couple hours. They were fought over a couple of days. Same is true of battles in World War II. Infantry battles could rage for a week as one side slowly pushes and the other side slowly gives
1: ground. And if you want to talk about battles that were real slogs, look at World War One, Which was oh, largely yeah. just a battle for yeah. about four years. Uh, yep. It was just gross and awful.
0: Yep. <laughs> But that's World War I for you. And and that is just Mm – there are individual moments that people kind of say, well, this was a battle. But by and large, it was just – Mud. Sit in these trenches and be muddy and shoot at
1: each other in a long-running engagement that never stops. Shoot at each other with progressively more horrible weapons until everybody realizes that this is going nowhere and we should stop now. Mm -hmm. I'm simplifying a little bit, but not as much as you'd think.
2: Yeah. Is there anything else in the battle that's going to be really weird? Is one side of the battle – Going to be you know regular sized humans, and the other side is a smaller number of giant people. Are the casualties from one side or even both sides of the army going to get up as zombies after being killed? Uh, a really interesting piece of inspiration that you can draw for this one is the game Small World, where that one is sort of like highly abstracted large combat and ground taking, but every race has. A weird quirk to it. So if you want to mess around a, a bit with that, then... Uh, yeah, and the
1: weird quirk changes from game to game, too, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Steve Jackson's
0: Ogre is another good example, although a little bit more tabletop board gamey than, I think, strictly a, a tactical
1: war game. Still so good, though.
0: Yeah, but it's that same <laughs> idea of asymmetric warfare, where it's kind of everybody against one guy, but they're evenly matched.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that is a
0: heck of a guy. <laughs> <laughs> So that's kind of some setting details to think about, but that's, that's not really what's going to engage players because players want to know what they have control over, what moving parts are involved. And this is where you need to put a lot of work in because these are the, the things that you might make assumptions about where you could easily change something and make things much more interesting and less predictable for your players. First thing to think about, how many sides and factions are there? I think, you know, we kind of default to thinking, well, there's two sides because most modern wars have been two sides, but that's not always true. And just because there are two nominal sides does not mean that there are two factions where the command structure is completely coherent and nobody runs off and does their own thing.
1: Yeah. In fact, that actually almost never happens, especially in ancient warfare.
0: Yeah. Not every unit is reliable. Not every unit is trustworthy. And not every unit on the same side is even in the same command hierarchy at all. Sometimes you may have a couple of allies who all sort of agree, yeah, we're going to kind of do this, but there's no central command. You know, These two or three or four allied forces are all independently kind of trying to do something they all vaguely agreed on. Yeah. That gets messy. And maybe one of them can be talked into switching or at least talked into sitting out and waiting to, you know, swoop in when everybody else has worn themselves out and take over and so on and so forth. These are things that player characters can get involved with very easily. Uh, it's a great point for players to jump in and do something sneaky here.
1: Yeah. There's a great scene in uh, Braveheart, actually, where um, an army of conscripts gets sent. After the Scottish is kind of like initial shock troops, basically, they kind of trot up to the Scottish line, shake hands with everybody, and they all turn around and charge the English together. <laughs> a moment like that is something that a player character group could absolutely orchestrate by taking out, you know, certain key officers or talking to people that might be commanding this group of conscripts and convincing them, hey, you know, you're really better off joining with our side. <laughs> it's... We'll, we'll let you go home to your families in much better shape than you would be if you fought us. So, why don't we just take on these people that we both hate together? Exactly. <laughs> um,
0: resources. Not every side will have the same resources. Some of them will be asymmetric. Some of them will be based on terrain. Some of them will be unique. These might be naval support, air support, TIE fighter support, wizard on flying carpet support, dragon whatever. support. Some of these may be reserves, supply trains, knowledge of the terrain special unit abilities, uh, spells that were cast before the, the battle even started, so on and so forth. But give some thought to what those resources are, how and when they might come into effect, and when those are under the control of the players and when those become complications the players have to deal with. The most important thing that you need to think about, even before you think about setting, even before you think about anything else, is what counts as a victory and what counts as a loss for each side. Very few battles actually
1: go to let's kill all the other guys. Yeah, usually that's a last stand kind of a situation. You see things like, you know, Thermopylae, for instance, but those are very much the exception, not the rule. Right. Most armies will leave after taking a
0: percentage of losses, usually a smaller percentage than you would think. They will leave when running out of supplies. If they are pushed off a particular strong position, they will often retreat because where they've been pushed to is no longer a tenable position to hold. They may retreat when enemy reinforcements arrive. There are all sorts of complications here, but you need to think about what counts as a win and what counts as a loss, both in terms of the game, but also in terms of the story. What is everyone trying to do? Because it's usually not, I hate these guys and want to kill them. Yeah.
1: There's also um, some value in thinking about what would count as like a Pyrrhic victory or as a very nominal defeat. What can you do that where you would technically achieve all of your objectives, but your forces would be damaged or uh, misplaced or something in some way where even though you technically won, it's still bad? And what could happen where you would technically lose, but you'd be in a really strong position for a follow-up engagement?
0: Next thing to think about, the capability, strengths, and weaknesses of particular units. This is where your setting is really going to shine, like the setting of your actual campaign. This is where the cool parts of your setting get to come out in force, right? If we're talking about genre fiction, whatever cool parts are in this genre, you get to see them all on display here. You know, you got your your cool wizards, you got your giant
1: walking mechs, you got your cybered up stormtroopers, you name it. Yeah, your big undead dragon, your... A Jedi or, you know, it's anything that's cool. Right. Yeah, And
0: this is where you can have like a centerpiece combatant unit as well. The Birthright campaign that I played in for a decade was all about these uh, these large-scale political and uh, strategic maneuvers. And a lot of that was mass combat. Mass combat's always been a part of the Birthright rules, even though it's D&D. And in one of the battles we had, we were fighting a particular monstrous evil creature and all of its minions. And, you know, the minions were various different military units. And the bad guy was a unit all on its own that was about the size of four units. Wow. That's cool. Like that's a Hmm. neat thing, right? This is a huge, monstrous, terrifying creature who just wrecks whole armies. That's scary. That's fun. Mm-hmm. That's a centerpiece for a, a huge campaign. This was something we spent years working toward. Like, it took us years to get to the point where we could fight this thing. It's a reaper it from Mass Effect. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It, it's that same scale. This thing is huge. It is a unit unto itself. It's one thing. But that stands out. There might also be a medical unit that doesn't actually fight but helps other units. And that makes them interesting. Quick word of advice, not every unit in mass combat is going to stand out as unique and interesting. Many of them by design are more of the same because more of the same often wins battles. Don't underestimate the value of a whole bunch of spearmen. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But having certain things stand out makes it fun and interesting and gives you that moment of what did we just run into? Those are cool reactions to have. Yeah. Play those up.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Communication. We talked about this a little with fog and weather, but- Making communication easy or hard can drastically change how battles go. And this is something, mm-hmm. again, player characters can get involved in. Oh, yeah, I need you to run this message. Oh, I need you to fix the radio. Hey, use your telepathy powers that you're keeping under wraps to notify the commander of what's going on, so on and so forth. And figure out how armies communicate and make that a factor in battle.
2: Yeah. If uh, they can't communicate, then they can't call for more help. Yep, It can be an incredibly isolating thing to destroy the communication method of the other side.
1: Well, and it can also turn something that would normally be like a very advantageous thing into something that's very dangerous. Let's say you're in like some kind of a spearhead unit and you manage to punch through the enemy's lines and then you suddenly lose communication with the main force. Now you're surrounded. That's bad. If everybody Mm -hmm. else knew you were there and could start widening the gap and pushing in behind you, then you've broken the enemy lines and you can start dividing the enemy force, and that's very good. But if you punch through and you suddenly get cut off, it's not so good.
0: (laughs) Next thing to think about, and this kind of gets into the same idea of resources and uh, what particular armies are capable of, fortifications and supply lines. Where's ammo coming from? Where's food coming from? Are people well fed?
1: Yeah. What's happening with the wounded?
0: Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there a, a safe place for an army to fight from? So on and so forth. These are things you just need to think about if they matter at all. They can be used just as detail, you know, a little bit of, uh, of descriptive fluff, or they can factor in heavily to how the combat plays out, however you want to do things. But think about it. Give it some thought so you can answer questions about it because your players might have clever ideas that you didn't think of.
1: If you want something that's very noble and heroic but isn't necessarily directly focused on doing damage in a military situation, military medicine is just crazy a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Like, some of those battlefield doctors and stuff, I mean, they've made movies about this stuff. Some of those people are... Crazy skilled, crazy brave, and unbelievably calm in situations that would make most of us implode from the stress. There's definitely material there. Yeah. And some of them are wildly incompetent. Yeah. Which Mm -hmm. also creates drama. I want to say there's
0: a, a case, and I think this was during the Civil War, where there was a guy who was so wildly incompetent as a field surgeon, he performed an amputation and three people died.
2: That was wow. during the Civil War, but it was not actually on the field, was it if not- I recall correctly. No, because one of the people who died died from a heart attack because this was in a surgery theater. Somebody died of literal like shock. Yeah. Not, not shock as in, I have been hurt and damn dying. Shock as in, what a surprise.
0: Yeah. <laughs> if I remember correctly, the guy he amputated the limb from died mm-hmm. of blood loss and sepsis. He died of sepsis. Or a bystander did. I can't remember which one. And the scene Um, was so bloody. He cut off the
2: finger. He cut off the finger of the person holding the leg. He made the incision in twenty-three seconds. And And then that third person
0: died of shock. Yeah. So battlefield medicine
2: sometimes not
0: the best. Yeah. (laughs) No.
2: It's it's a really great way to get stuff infected. Oh yeah. As um talked about a lot on one of my favorite podcasts, Sawbones. Battle is one of the best, most efficient ways to get a sickness to spread like wildfire. It is a dirty, nasty situation much of the time, and it's a great way to get bacteria and viruses and parasites to spread.
0: Yes. So. But also, you know, if somebody doesn't have good battlefield medicine, every casualty is serious.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if they have extraordinarily good battlefield medicine, as especially if they have like healing magic or something like that. Casualties mm-hmm. almost just give those people time to rest unless they're killed outright. <laughs> yeah. If somebody gets, you know, like run through the sword and run on a stretcher back to the lines where like the clerics are waiting there and they like heal him up and give him a bunch of temporary hit points and he goes charging back into battle. That's like, uh oh, kind of a moment if you're on the other side. <laughs> yeah, that actually mattered a lot
0: in our uh, our birthright game, because when units have two hit points, Three hit points, maybe five if they're the most elite units around. A heal spell that restores a hit, that's a significant amount of healing. So, you know, when you have battlefield spellcasters, that that matters a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of support stuff, uh, support weaponry and support units. Theme these for whatever your setting is. Maybe it's an orbital cannon. Maybe it's a wizard with a giant lens that magnifies his fireball scrolls. Whatever it is, think about what it could be and make it fun. Yeah, And all of this does tie together, right? There's a concept of combined arms, which has kind of been a part of military doctrine in various different forms going back millennia. But that idea of different things happening on the battlefield in concert in this complicated action is what makes – large-scale battles interesting because there's more than just numbers running into each other until one number outnumbers the other number.
1: Yeah. For instance, if you're fighting the armies of the Dark Lord and all of a sudden the artillery support you've been getting from the sea several miles away stops because the Dark Lord's minions have summoned a Kraken and the ship is now trying to fight it with depth charges, that's very dramatic and it also creates a new problem for your player characters.
0: Yep. One thing I want you to think about very seriously when you are doing large-scale combat, make a map. I don't care if it's professional quality or my five-year-old did it with MS Paint quality. There's a lot going on, and you and your players all need to keep track of it. Now, you don't necessarily have to share everything on the map, depending on what kind of rules you're using. Your players may not know everything that's going on. But first of all, having a top-down view is pretty engaging. Maps make it feel a little more war room like you know this is this is what's going on here are units moving around instead of trying to narrate everything that can get intense if somebody's really good but sometimes there's so much going on you just get lost and then it's just uh yeah just tell me when to swing my sword
1: yeah and that happens Mm -hmm. It's also very good if you can change the map. Remember when we were talking about support weapons? Yeah, if that wizard starts lobbing those lens enhanced fireballs, it's going to probably burn down that grove of trees that's over in the western section of the map. And then the archers won't be able to use that as cover anymore. Mm
0: -hmm. Also, it's a really cool souvenir for your players. Like that's one of those game artifacts players love to keep.
1: And this is true, Mm -hmm. even if it just looks like a map of sports teams where it's just a bunch of like X's and arrows and stuff like that. Even that, the players will remember what happened there.
0: Yeah, the messy Mm -hmm. aftermath, you know, with all the scribbles, keep it. It's great. Yeah. We're going to talk about the role of player characters in a separate episode, but I do want to very quickly touch on a couple of points. First of all, um, player characters may simply be relevant (laughs) in terms of power level on a medium to large scale uh, tactical combat map, because in certain games, player characters get stupidly powerful. Yeah, like 10th level D&D characters are basically demigods. I well, mean, they do a 20th, lot of damage.
1: Yeah. Once you start 20. getting yeah,
0: you know, like up to the 19th, 20th level, yeah, especially in certain editions. There are games where it's set up so that a single player character is functionally the same as a military unit. I'm looking at you, Warhammer 40K.
1: Or even <laughs> 3.5 d and a fighter with the great cleave feat. Yeah, it's just like a that. lawnmower on the battlefield. You Kind of.
0: But that, that's getting into system details. It that, is, but it's yeah. a good example that was readily at hand. That kind of thing.
2: Basically, uh, list casters. here any power fantasy main character in any video game. Yeah, but pretty like much. Commander Shepard would be a unit. Yeah,
0: yeah pretty much. All
2: on their own.
0: Yeah. The other thing that can happen, of course, is player characters have a command role for whatever reason. Doesn't matter why, but this is a thing that can happen. Maybe they are in charge of part of it. Maybe they're in charge of all of it, whatever it is. That gives you an excuse to have your players directly involved, but it also lets the aspects of the characters come out in what they do and how they do it. And that's a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. In my opinion, I, th- I think it works the best if you're in some kind of like a middling rank. You know, you don't want to be the general and you don't want to just be like a sergeant. Things like captains and majors and stuff where you've got a decent number of units under your command, but you're not orchestrating the entire thing. See, and our birthright game, we were orchestrating the entire thing. And that was fantastic.
0: One guy's character, like that was what he did. That was what he had trained up his character to do, and he was super good at it, and that was his moment to shine.
1: Yeah, and if if that's what the whole game is going to be about, like it is with Birthright, by all means, go for that. If it's going to be like something Mm -hmm. that's in the middle of a more traditional game, stick with those kind of middling ranks. Uh, I I would disagree,
0: but that's really based on what your story is and what your players and GM want to do. Yeah, this is definitely
1: a subjective Mm -hmm. thing. It's just Brent and I have different opinions about it, I guess. (laughs) Yes, and of course, I'm right, blah, blah, blah. Um,
0: One thing to remember, and this is what we're going to talk about a lot in our other episode, not everything that affects the battle happens on the battlefield. There are yeah. all sorts of forms of chicanery you can engage in before and during and after the battle that affect the outcome without anybody picking up a weapon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> those are great ways to have a mass combat happen without having to dig up any mass combat yeah. rules.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, Brad, yeah. the Earl of Southmarch to arrive two days after the battle is done. Gave yeah. in the mountain pass to the west so that the one of the um, units that the enemies are going to be counting on being there can't get through in time poison yeah. the water in some city so everybody's you know hang around holding their stomachs and isn't ready to yeah. fight or something there's there's a yeah. lot you can
2: bribe do people. <laughs> disable, <Yeah>. bribe people Bribe <laughs> people disable
0: the orbital defense cannons so that landing force meets no resistance so on and so forth yeah. all sorts of things you can do uh we'll talk about all of that when we get back to this particular topic i do want to close with a couple of pitfalls first you are specifically playing this out instead of telling the players what is happening. Avoid GM fiat and avoid giving your players a lack of agency. The whole point of turning this into a game in the first place is letting the players help decide the outcome. Let them do it.
1: Yeah, at least for where they are. Obviously, yeah. you're going to have to fiat stuff that's happening miles or you know light years away from them. But where they are, let them affect it. Right. Uh, don't say, hey, I'm going
0: to make you slog through all this and then... Oh, surprise, none of what you did had any agency because I was telling a story. Just tell the story, please. <coughs> save Mass everyone. A,
2: three. Yeah. Please,
0: please <laughs> save everyone all the time. <laughs> Give a lot of thought to the tone you want to set here. Depending on what you're doing, war might be glorious and heroic. It might be grim and grinding and miserable and horrifying or some mix thereof. Peter, the
1: Exosquad stuff that you started watching, I don't know how far you've gotten with that. I've made it through the first disc and the second disc didn't play. So I just got my replacement ones recently. Fair enough. But, you know, that that presents a very specific perspective on war. Yeah.
0: That is distinctly different from, say, uh, an infantry story in World War One. Yeah. Very different. The tone affects the story you're telling. War is one of those places where certain lines and veils may be violated. So set those ahead of time and stick to them. It is possible to tell a very bowdlerized. War story if you have to, but at the same time, you're telling a war story, not a dry history. So keep that in mind. Yeah. Make sure you have objectives in mind for all sides. This is an easy trap to fall into because, well, we're having a mass combat. Clearly, it's, well, we're just going to fight at each other until the fighting stops. Most times there's a strategic objective. Take a hill might be an entire combat. And then once the hill is taken, the other side retreats and you're done or at least pulls back and you can say, "Okay, you've taken the hill. We can stop our story here. It's
1: rare that you have two sides who just hate each other and want to kill each other. Yeah, I mean they they may hit each other and want to kill each other, but that's not all that's going on there. And neither yes, side why? is going to have what's the mo Yeah, and neither <laughs> what's side the motivation? is motivation. Yes, <laughs> and neither side is going to have perfect morale and fight to the last man. Much less both of them. Yes, unless you have avoid two sides that. of robots or zombies or something else that doesn't really have any sort of morale to speak of, banging away. At some point, one of the sides is going to take a few too many casualties and is going to. Break, And they're going to route or they're going to start pulling back or they're going to call for, you know, some kind of additional something is going to change. They're not just going to grind each other down until only one side has people left. That yeah. almost never happens. And once
0: it's clear that one side has one, you can wrap it up there. That's very important. Making everyone play it out in such a way that the conclusion is obvious, but, oh, we have to roll all the rest of the dice is tedious and unnecessary don't do it
1: yeah we don't even do that in our D game for tactical stuff much less strategic so yeah usually I'll, I'll just say all right everyone else flees or you guys wrap it up from here yeah it has one <laughs> yeah. hit point like we said in a previous episode yeah
0: well or it's like all right we started with 18 ratlings or whatever we're down to three does anyone here feel the need to do another round of algebra <laughs> no yeah.
1: no no Good talk. (laughs) (laughs) Triumphant victory. The remaining ratlings flee back into the war ends. You have won. Or tell me how you mop it up. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Don't get bogged down in that. And don't get bogged down in the minutia. It's easy to think there's a lot going on in war. I need to think about all of it. No think about what's important. Like we said at the start of this topic, think about what is important for your story before you start trying to come up with rules for this or finding rules or paying attention to those rules. You can write off 90% of the combat if the players aren't going to have any engagement in any part except one particular encounter in that battle.
1: Yeah. Remember you are telling a story, not trying to simulate an entire war down to the last soldier and bullet. Right. And we're not talking in here, you know, as we wrap this up, we are not trying to talk
0: about actual war games. (laughs) Yeah. A game where the, the idea is let's simulate a mass combat. The idea is let's make a mass combat that happens in your role playing game. Interesting.
1: Yeah. If you want to go play Warhammer or, you know, War Machine or Advanced Squad Leader, well, those games all exist, you know. Or your those awesome pewter soldier eighteen twelve battles
0: or whatever, you know, th- those mm-hmm. mass armies. Yeah, moving across yeah, the field. Like the Napoleonic Play those; War stuff. those are yeah. fun, but they're different that from is a role playing game. game. Yeah, I think that's about it, Jenny. Anything else? Not really, Peter. Nope. Awesome. We have a lot more to talk about as far as getting player characters involved, and what happens when you have people who. You want to make important in the larger picture of a, a battle. We have a lot to talk about there, but we'll save that for the next episode. I do want to thank our Patreon supporters who picked this topic. It's a fun one, one we've kind of had in the back of our minds really for a couple of years now. Never really got around to. want to thank you guys for for picking that out. And again, if you want to support our show, patreon.com savingthegame saving the game. Big thanks to everybody who does support our show, who keeps us on the air and lets us uh, find new stuff that we will turn into content for you. Yep.
2: Yeah. There we go.
0: All right. I think we're going to wrap it up here for everyone here at Saving the Game. Have a good one. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy holidays. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. See ya. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at Nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.